Based on the evidence we have so far, it seems clear that NAD plus goes down with age. Not that much, but that, that there is an overall decrease with age in a lot of tissues and NADH much less so. So that the redox state you know, may be shifting towards NADH at the same time as the total amounts going down a little bit. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We are produced by InstaTracker, your science-based guide to optimize your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Joe Bauer. Joe Bauer is a professor at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He has made a key contribution to the understanding of how metabolism, a dietary factor, influence longevity. In 2006, Dr. Bauer and colleagues show that sirtonin activator, resveratrol, is able to improve insulin sensitivity and rescue a premature mortality in obese mice. He led the team of, that revealed the mechanism accounting for off-target ef- effect of rapamycin, a drug that extends life in mice but has a side effect that limits its utility in humans. His laboratory at UPenn is currently focused on the use of small molecules to understand and mimic the health-promoting effect of caloric restriction in rodent, with a particular focus on nicotine adenine dinoclotide, as known as NAD+, metabolism. He has a co-author more than 100 peer-reviewed publications, as well as several books, chapters, and numerous reviews and is a standing member of the NH study section on cellular mechanism of aging and development. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Gil. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So it's a great pleasure having you, and uh, as you know and I know, we know each other for maybe 20 years, uh, still from the time that you spend your time at the uh, David Sinclair Lab, and I I was uh, uh, under the supervision of uh, Lenny Garante, uh, but I would like to go even further back and ask you what led you to become a scientist. <laughs> um, I don't know that there was ever a specific point. I kind of always knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, whenever I read stories about scientific discoveries, I was uh, kind of identified with the scientists involved and, and just assumed that that's uh, that's how my life was going to go. I did think uh, for a long time that I was going to go into physics, uh, and I think. That's when I really started reading some papers on aging, you know, the end of high school, the beginning of college, uh, where that, as the, as the question I really wanted to focus on, really captured my attention. Something so sort of fundamental to life that we really don't understand. Uh, and, and so that, that's what kind of eventually tore me away from the physics path and onto biology. But, uh, but as far as science, I think that, that was always going to happen. Excellent. And uh, as we discussed before, you joined the David Sinclair Labs and worked there for a few years. So what uh, uh, made you to come and join the Sinclair Lab? <laughs> uh, so that was, that was a really exciting time in the field, as you know, also being in Lenny Garante's lab at that point, um, you know, when sirtuins were first described as things that could modulate lifespan in yeast, and this was, you know, I think, the third 
sort of set of longevity genes that had ever been described. And so at that point, these, these things were really unique and, and really a new, fascinating idea. Um, and so um, I actually run into David Sinclair at a, at a meeting in Cold Spring Harbor and pitched the idea to him to try to find small molecule activators of the mammalian sirtuins. And he eventually broke down and told me that they had done this project already and come up with resveratrol uh, as something that could activate sirtuins and that he actually needed a postdoc to you know come in and set up this mouse experiment and do the real test. Uh, and so that was sort of irresistible at the time. And <laughs> I packed up my bags and, and, and moved to Boston to, to join his group and, and do that. Excellent. I didn't know that. That's uh, very exciting that uh, you came with the idea, maybe in parallel to David, to do this uh, uh, search. So I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to say that we had the idea completely at the same time. I was a few years too late and he was, uh, he was showing me the paper by the time I told him the yeah. idea. But <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that I seeing it from a completely different angle from the uh, Lenny's lab. I remember that uh, when uh, David published the first paper about resveratrol and the activation of uh, SIR2, he was a bit pissed because he, he has he had also the idea to do that, but basically David scooped him. So it, it sounds like at that time everyone had the, the idea, but uh, it sounds like uh, or looks like David was the first to execute on that. And uh, speaking on which, so in uh, 2008, you published a very exciting paper about resveratrol and its effect on uh, obese mice. And uh, I would like if you can uh, provide some explanation of what uh, have you done is the, in the paper, what was the study, and what uh, are the results that you got from this uh, experiment. Right. I mean, so so the idea there was that we had this molecule that at the time had been shown to uh, extend lifespan in yeast uh, and uh, in in vitro assays to activate SIR2 uh, and SIR2-1, the mammalian homologue. And so the hope was that we could take this activator uh, and treat animals, and hopefully through that mechanism of activating uh, CERT1, maybe have some beneficial effects on health and, and lifespan. Uh, and I should just point out to anyone listening right, that this, this field obviously has gone through a lot of controversy since then. There's been questions about the design of that assay or whether there's a, a fluorescent group used in the original assay to identify these things as CERT2 inactivators that was required for the assay to work, which it shouldn't have been. It was supposed to be just part of the assay. And, and uh, so sort of mysteriously, the, 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 there was a potentially an artifactual activation of sirtuins that led to this this whole uh, beginning. And that's gone back and forth with uh, different papers arguing that there's properties of the substrate that mimic that fluorescent molecule uh, and, and that it does, doesn't activate sirtuins. Um, so what I could say is that you know, in our own hands, what we had seen in cells is whatever the mechanism we'd seen increased sirtuin activity after treating this molecule. And what we set out to do was test whether the molecule itself had any beneficial effects on health or longevity. Um, and so what we ended up doing was um, a couple of different treatment groups, just mice under standard housing conditions, plus and minus resveratrol. We made them obese uh, on a high fat diet, which would shorten their lifespan and make them less healthy uh, and treated those animals as well. And we did every other day feeding as a, a form of calorie restriction uh, and to ask if that would be additive with resveratrol treatment. And so what we ended up finding was that the mice that were obese uh, in the control group had a shortened lifespan and resveratrol completely prevented that. And so essentially the chow fed mice with or without resveratrol and the obese mice fed resveratrol had overlapping survival curves, but the obese mice that didn't get resveratrol had a shortened lifespan as a result. And so it seemed to really negate a lot of the negative effects of the high fat diet. And that was true in more detail. If we went in and looked at gene expression profiles, um, there was a really prominent fatty liver effect from the high-fat diet that was completely cured by the resveratrol treatment. Uh, and so that that kind of became 
you know, the, the major outcome of that study that we and, and others focused on was this sort of rescuing of the detrimental effects of obesity. And uh, now, 15 years later, and a lot of uh, different papers, as you said, that uh, resveratrol mm -hmm. is activator of CRT1, is not. How do you see resveratrol as a supplementation and uh, what, uh, what the current science is saying about that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's still always going to be these two separate questions of it. Does it have any beneficial effect? And, and if so, why? <laughs> Uh, and so I think there, there's still work going on, you know, uh, back and forth a little bit about the particular mechanism, uh, you know, whether it's really binding to CERT1, and that's really the driver uh, of some of the effects. But I think in terms of the clinical trials, um, it's been clear for the diabetes indication uh, in humans that it's not a cure the way it seems to be in the mice. Uh, there is a net benefit overall, but it's not comparable to something like metformin. And so there's, there's probably not much utility in that particular space. Um, at the same time, resveratrol and a lot of other polyphenols have been shown to improve blood flow and endothelial function. Uh, and I think there is potentially something to that. Uh, there's also been some trials in Alzheimer's disease where it uh, is showing some indications of affecting the A-beta accumulation. Uh, and so I, I would not in any sense be ready to say that it is not useful for something. Um, but certainly there hasn't been a straight line from the most studies we were involved in to, to uh, getting similar benefits in humans. Okay, so... Uh I'll try to simplify to our uh, listeners. So what you are saying, there might be a value in resveratrol, but it's not yet clear what and how and how important it is as a supplement. Is it fair to say that? Yeah. And I would say the cases where it does show some promise right now in clinical trials, in many cases, that there may be, a, in many cases, effects that are more general to polyphenols, this whole class of chemicals yeah. that resveratrol belongs to. And it's not the most common one among those, you know, in, in many of the... Uh, foods that we would eat, for instance, that would have some of these beneficial molecules. So maybe another recommendation, you don't need to try to find the purer and the most expensive resveratrol. You can buy a, a simple, cheaper polyphenol and you might receive the same value as a pure resveratrol. That's uh, fair to say? I, I think with respect to blood, blood flow and endothelial function, where, where, where there's the best evidence, I think that is true. Yeah. Okay. Okay, excellent. So uh, now I want to shift gear and focus on uh, your current research. And I think that is something that uh, is a very interesting and I would say also a bit confusing, uh, let's say, chapter or focus of uh, aging research, and that's the NAD and NAD analogs and NAD metabolism. So I would like to start from the beginning and uh, a deep dive into that because uh, I hear a lot of questions about that and I think that I, I have to say that I read uh, your recent uh, review uh, uh, as a preparation for this uh, interview, and it's fascinating how much information we have, but also how much information we don't have yet. So I would love to work together with you and try to explain to our users as best as we can how the science is studying today and what, uh, based on that, maybe each of uh, the listener can uh, take his own or her own direction of whether they should use it and what they should use and so on. So I would like to start with a, a NAD, an explanation about what is NAD and why it's so important for metabolism. Mm -hmm. yeah, so NAD is a metabolic cofactor and it's, it's involved in the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of metabolism, right? When we take in carbohydrates or fats and, you know, trying to turn those into usable energy, they go through a series of biochemical transformations, and many of those steps depend on, on having NAD there to accept high-energy electrons and then donate them back in other reactions or to donate them directly to the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, which is what gives that, that uh, 
organelle the energy it needs to generate usable ATP. And so without NAD present, you actually can't have any sustainable path to generating ATP and, and cells can't survive any cell at all. And we know humans can't survive even with a severe nutritional deficiency when you still have a substantial amount of NAD in your body, you, you get a fatal disease called pellagra, uh, which ends up uh, cause, causing neurological symptoms and skin symptoms and, and uh, eventually ends up being fatal. And uh, how NAD is converted to NADP plus? And uh, also, maybe as a follow-up question, uh, if you can explain what's it, what is ATP and why is it important? Sure. Well, so, so ATP is adenosine triphosphate, right? and this is sort of the, the energy currency of cells. Uh, most of the things that are taking place in our body uh, that require energy do it by cleaving ATP as a, as a coupled reaction. And so, so whatever energetically... Yeah, unfavorable process you want to happen um, is done in a way that catalytically uses a molecule of ATP and uses the energy from breaking that molecule to fuel the the event you're trying to trigger. So it's it just we thought of as really as the as the energy currency of the cell. Um, NAD, as I was saying, is required for every sustainable path to generate ATP. And if you can't generate ATP, um, that that's the end of the line for the cell. Right? You need it to to keep the cell alive. Um, so you touched on NADP, which is a related molecule that's a phosphorylated form of NAD. Um, and really, the, so the only source of NADP is from NAD. It does get phosphorylated by a kinase. And essentially, those uh, that duplication of that function by making a different form of NAD essentially allows those two molecules to have different sets of cofactors that they regulate, but they have the same function. They both accept electrons and, and donate them back in different types of reactions. Um, but what's so the NAD is actually uh, NAD plus is the way it's usually written because there's a positive charge delocalized on the nicotinamide ring, and when it accepts those high energy electrons, it gets reduced to NADH, and so there's this property of the cell or the state of a given compartment within the cell is the ratio of NAD to NADH, and that helps push different reactions backward or forward, and the fact that you have NADP as an alternative. Uh, you know, a cofactor that can do those types of reactions allows you to have two different redox states, one for NAD and one for NADP. So in the cytosol, NAD is mostly oxidized as NAD+, and NADP is mostly reduced as NADPH. And so you can have them pushing uh, opposite sides of this redox equation, I guess, for different reactions that you want to go different ways. Excellent. Thank you so much for the explanation. And the uh, NAD is uh, maybe become very famous, again, based on the protein that both you and me used to work on, which is uh, the CIR2 family of the uh, acetylase. So can you explain how NAD is connected to the CIR2 family? Yeah, so so, so two um, and, and the related molecules were found to be uh, deacylases. So they remove acyl chains, um, the smallest and most common one being an acetyl group from proteins. And... This was a big discovery by Shin and Mai that unlike other proteins that catalyze that activity that, that can remove acetyl groups, uh, sirtuins specifically require NAD as a cofactor. And the acetyl group ends up attached to the ADP ribose part of, of NAD. Uh, and, and that is generally a theme for a lot of the things that NAD does other than the electron uh, accepting and donating for the enzymes that use it for other purposes. Um, it's kicking off that nicotinamide moiety and, and the remaining part um, ends up being able to accept you know, other molecules or be attached to things very easily. The nicotinamide is a good leaving group to leave a space for something else to attach there to that backbone. 
Um, and so uh, for the Sirtuins, uh, you know, and this was a big revelation that they had this NAD dependent activity that hadn't been seen before to remove groups. Um, and then the idea of, that logically followed from that was that maybe you could regulate their activity by regulating NAD levels. Uh, and certainly you can, if you knock NAD levels down low enough, the Sirtuins are not active. Uh, it's a more complicated question, how far you can push their activity by increasing NAD beyond normal. Um, and that gets into a lot of the uh, the reason why there's so much confusion in this field is that NAD is compartmentalized in different places. Some of it's protein bound, some of it's not. It's got this inherent redox state that's hard to measure. And so just knowing, for instance, the KM of a protein for NAD doesn't give you enough information often to predict whether or not it's going to be sensitive to small changes in NAD levels. It really, uh, you can have to take a very deep dive in there just to understand how much we don't know about, <laughs> about sort of predicting which proteins are going to be responsive. Yeah, and a side note about you mentioned that uh, Shinimai uh, discovered the NAD dependency of sirtonin. And actually, when I joined the lab, Shin already left, but uh, I, uh, I got his uh, a seat in the lab. And uh, I remember the big mass spectrometry that uh, he had there that uh, basically we he used to discover it. And uh, it was a, a really exciting time at the Garretta lab following this discovery, which was a real revolution. Speaking on which, CIL2 is not the only uh, protein that is uh, activated by NAD to make it even more complex, the story, than what it was before. So can you elaborate on that? And what other proteins are activated or uh, need the cofactor of NAD in order to be active? Right. So just take a step back, too, because I, I kind of jumped into the sideways saying, first of all, the, mo the most fundamental role of NAD is the one I was describing, sort of accepting and donating electrons. And there's about 500 reactions in the cell that require it for that purpose. And that regenerates it. It goes to NADH and then it goes back to NAD and you don't really destroy it. The sirtuins are one of the uh, classes of enzymes that actually use the NAD molecule as a co-substrate and break it down and kick off the nicotinamide. Um, so other enzymes that do that include PARPs, which were actually discovered to do that first, called the ADP ribosyl transferases. Um, these enzymes will kick off the nicotinamide and use, stick the rest of the NAD molecule onto a protein as a modification. Uh, and in the case, some of them are just mono-ADP ribosyl transferases, but the name comes from the poly-ADP ribosyl transferases that will keep then stacking units onto that um, and signal for things like apoptosis or DNA repair. Um, there are classes of enzymes that uh, generate uh, cyclic ADP ribose, so they actually don't make the molecule connect to itself where the nicotinamide used to be. Um, and that's important in calcium signaling. And so um, CD38 is one of the ones that can do that. There's been some debate back and forth about which enzymes uh, produce the most cyclic ADP and which you know, which produce the physiologically meaningful amounts. But that is one of the activities of, of, of CD38, uh, which is important in immune cell signaling. Uh, there's another enzyme that's gotten famous much more recently called SARM1 uh, that turns out uh, to be the enzyme that is responsible for uh, causing axonal degeneration. So there's this really famous uh, mouse where you could sever the axons from neurons and they would just go on to live by themselves free floating for weeks. And the mutation that caused that turned out to be uh, in a, a fusion with NMNAT1, which is one of the NAD biosynthesis enzymes that would cause it to mislocalize and generate a lot of uh, NAD in the axons. Uh, and it turns out that that would counteract the activity of this enzyme SARM1 that depletes all the NAD in the axon and as part of the process of, of it dying. And so when you have this counteracting activity and maintained NAD levels and axons, they, they'd survive for weeks. 
And so SARM-1 okay. was discovered in that context and is now being studied in neurodegeneration, but it's actually much more widely expressed and, and people are getting much more interested in how that is relating to overall NAD metabolism. And from all of those proteins that uh, need NAD, which of them, in your opinion, is the most exciting, at least as of today? <laughs> uh, that, that's a tough question. I'm going to make enemies at that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, right now, I think SARM-1 is the the biggest mystery, just because it was discovered in this very specific context, but it it's pretty widely expressed and it can completely wipe out the NAD pool if you get it active in the wrong situation. And so I think that's the one that's the most likely to reveal a few more secrets in the next few few years. Um, I mean, you know, always going to have a soft spot for sirtuins, of course, but uh, but I think we've, we've had quite a bit of time to, to get familiar with the, the most obvious things that come from those. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that, that's fair to say. And you mentioned at the introduction to the NAD that there is a disease that's called pellagra that mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, some people with a deficiency of vitamin B3 that uh, basically have deficiency of because of that of NAD+. What is the prevalence of this disease? So now it's uh, really only found in developing nations where there's uh, issues with diet and access to, to medical treatment in the first place. Uh, in the U.S., it was... It was endemic in the southern U.S. up till about 1925. And named Joseph Goldberger uh, proved that it was not an infectious disease, which had been debated that it really was a nutritional deficiency and that he could prevent it by uh, just providing a better quality diet to people, some meats and, and milk uh, in particular. And after that, um, he went on. There was a, a, a canine disease that was pretty similar called black tongue disease that, that was also the result of, of uh of NAD deficiency in that species. And so there were a couple of groups studying this um, and uh, eventually came up with the idea that, that nicotinamide and nicotinic acid could cure it and that there really was some sort of redox defect in this condition and that, that those were the sources of NAD and kind of put the whole story together in the night earlier, right around 1940. So, so today nobody should uh, run uh, following your interview and buy a uh, vitamin B3 because we should be okay with that and nobody need to worry. That's uh, fair to say? Yeah, you have to, you have to put a, a pretty extreme effort into creating a, a niacin deficiency that's severe enough to cause that kind of disease today with access to the food we have. The diet that, that is able to do it is, is pretty much purely corn. <laughs> Very low calories in total and, and a lot of corn. So there, you have to actually treat corn with lye, which is what Native Americans have done. Um, to release some of the vitamins in order to get enough uh, NAD precursors to be okay. And uh, a lot of the people moving around in the U.S. were eating corn uh, closer to raw and, uh, and not able to extract enough vitamin from it. But you have to work pretty hard to find a diet that doesn't give you enough. Got it. That's, that's good to know. And uh, as we age, do we have more NAD or NADH? So NADH measurements are... are very challenging, and you know, there's always some debate around them whether you whether the redox state is being altered by the extraction method, or you know just whether we even can pick it up well enough because it's it's at um, a much lower concentration than NAD. So, based on the evidence we have so far, it seems clear that NAD plus goes down with age, not that much, but that that there is an overall decrease with age in a lot of tissues, and NADH much less so, so that the redox state. You know, maybe shifting towards NADH at the same time as the total amounts going down a little bit. And uh, why do you think that it's a decline with uh, age? 
And is it, uh, you mentioned that it's a bit and it might be tissue specific. So what kind of tissue you see the, the strongest decline and what kind of tissue you don't see a decline? Um, we see it pretty clearly in adipose tissues, um, in the gut, in the intestines. Uh, we see it in liver uh, and in muscles in the heart um, pretty reproducibly. So in adipose tissue, we get something like a 50% decline, which is the most dramatic. There, there's always this caveat that brown adipocytes, uh, which are the thermogenic ones right, that, that generate heat and have more mitochondria, have a lot more NAD in them. And, and so some of our adipose t- depots have a few brown adipocytes in there when we're young and, and get more white as we age. Uh, and, and so there's a concern there that it's partly the composition of the tissue that could be changing with the adipose and not purely the amount of NAD in the same type of cell. Um, I think that's l- a little bit less of a concern with the muscle and the liver and the, and the intestines. So I do feel pretty confident this is happening. But, but I think there is always that one caveat when you show the more dramatic effect in the adipose. Yeah, and do you, do you believe that uh, you said that uh, in the adipocyte it's going down by 50%, but other it's less? So do you think that it's uh, physiologically significant, this decline, or, or, or not? No, I think that's a huge question in the, in the field right now. And, and uh, I mean, I, I would have believed that, I think, um, you know, without having done any experiments that, you know, it's so important that so many reactions, there should, there could be some limiting things where, you know, even a 20 or 30% decline would be felt. Um, in my own hands and in the lab, at least the, the experiments we've done in the heart and the skeletal muscle have suggested that you can knock down NAD levels to 30% of normal uh, and still be relatively uh, unimpaired in terms of function. And so it really raises this question of like, does, does the amount that we see of a decrease with aging really matter. Um, and I think the, the most straightforward answer that I would hypothesize is that what we're seeing in aging is focal depletions. That if, if you're really able to go through the tissue in more detail, that you'd see there's some cells with almost no NAD that really are dysfunctional in other regions that are totally fine. That hasn't been easy to assess with the methods we've been using up till now. We're right on the cusp of being able to do that with imaging mass spectrometry. And so we're, mm-hmm. we're working on methods now, especially with Joshua Benowitz's group at Princeton, to do that. And, and I think that we, we should have a very clear answer to whether or not that hypothesis is true very soon. Yeah. And if we'll continue to hypothesize, if it's okay with you, is it uh, the depletion you will see it more in uh, metabolic active tissues or in metabolic inactive tissue? What is your opinion or yeah. your hypothesis? Um. I'm not sure I've thought about it exactly that way before, <laughs> just because we see it in a mix, you know, these, the skeletal muscles mostly, you know, post-mitotic and the heart's post-mitotic for the most part where we're looking and we do see declines there, but we also see it in the intestine, which is highly replicative. So I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure we have evidence for a real strong bias right now. Okay, so it's uh, still unknown, which is okay. As we know, as in science, there are a lot of questions that are, uh, are not uh, answered. So my next question is, it sounds like, or not sounds like, you, you have a lot of evidence, and I've seen it in the literature, that NAD is declining with uh, the aging process. So now uh, I'm sure that they, our listeners will ask, okay, what can I do about that? And I will start with, let's say, more natural intervention. So if I'm a, a gill that would like now to increase my NAD level because I'm uh, becoming older, what are natural ways for me to do it in, other than uh, consuming supplement we'll uh, discuss later? I mean, I think the things we know right now are calorie restriction and exercise. Uh, and 
I mean, I think exercise is the most obvious recommendation for anyone if you want to improve your health, right? I mean, across the board, that seems like the best thing we can do. And that, that in itself boosts NAD levels. And, and uh, let, let's start with caloric restriction. So do you need to, or I don't know if uh, this experiment have been done, but uh, do you need to fast completely? Do you need to cut a certain amount of calories or it's still not clear what is uh, the exact amount of uh, uh, fasting or caloric restriction that you need to do in order to improve your NAD level? Uh, I, I would say it's not clear. So, the, I mean, this is still based on, I think, three different rodent studies. Uh, when, when we say that calorie restriction might be a way to do this. So it should be clear that it's it's not shown at all in humans at this point. Uh, and th- in those studies, the, the calorie restriction was done with this sort of standard protocol of reducing calorie intake by 40% per day. And okay. there's been a lot of debate about how to translate that to humans exactly. Uh, I think most of the human studies have gone with a more like 25% reduction in calorie intake compared yeah. to what was required from weight maintenance, uh, partly under the argument that the mice comparing to are sedentary and obese for their species in many cases. And what, what about ketogenic diet? Can that also increase the NAD level? So the effects that I've seen from ketogenic diet are more related to the redox state. So it does increase the amount of NAD, but at the expense of NADH for the most part, okay. it's shifting that ratio. Um, and that, that partly makes sense because when you, um, consume sugar, right? It's going through glycolysis, which is producing NADH in the cytosol, uh, where uh, on ketogenic diets, everything's being metabolized inside the mitochondria, and you'd expect the cytosol to become more oxidized. And uh, do you think that it's uh, positive that you decrease the, re- change the ratio with ketogenic diet, or you're not sure? <laughs> um, I mean, with all these things, it's always a little bit of speculation. I think from the point of view of things like sirtuins, um, it's positive, because I think sirtuins... Uh, in many cases, are seeing mostly the amount avail- of NAD available to them, or and, and in some cases, in, potentially inhibited by NADH, and so that change in ratio is enough to drive their activity more. Okay, so if you want to activate the CIL2 family, it's positive. If not, we are not sure. But uh, again, as we know in science, uh, uh, at least that's the best science that we know for today, and we need to live with that. So I would like now to talk about exercise. So exercise, is it a long-term exercise or is it enough that I went for a a run uh, today and then uh, tomorrow my uh, NAD plus level will be higher or I need to exercise for a a month, a week or uh, two months? Any any data about that? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, there's not a huge amount, but I think what we know suggests that it's cumulative. So it's, it's clear from a single bout of exercise that NAMPT, which is the rate limiting enzyme for NAD biosynthesis, goes up in muscle. Um, there's a few studies that have looked you know, within hours of exercise and have not shown an increase in NAD at that time point. Uh, but I think the fact that the, the salvage pathway that makes the NAD is going up already suggests that, you know, maybe 12 hours later, you probably would have some uh, increase in NAD, whether or not it's measurable at that point. Uh, and then certainly looking at exercise trained individuals over time, they have more NAD in their muscle than, than people who are sedentary. In fact, there was a human study published a couple of years ago now um, that showed that if you grouped older people into highly exercise trained and sort of moderately healthy and, and then sort of unhealthy uh, people who, who were, uh, had problems with mobility, uh, there was a clear distinction in terms of NAD levels in their muscle. And the highly trained older people actually were not statistically significantly lower than young people in terms of muscle okay. NAD levels. Okay. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you is that it's more like a long term than a short term because in the very short term, we haven't seen the effect. 
And uh, my follow-up question is, if you know, maybe it's not known, is it a, a more like endurance or more like a strength exercise that uh, uh, improved the NAD level? I don't think that's been shown. So in the, in the short studies where they did induce the transcriptional response that should upregulate NAD synthesis, um, it, was, uh, it was intense exercise. It was cycling at that sort of maximum power output uh, for short bursts. Um, I'm not even sure which one I would categorize that as. I guess this is cycling more thought of as endurance typically, even though that was pretty intense. Uh, so I, I just don't think we have the data to distinguish. Okay. Okay. That, that's fair. As we know in science, you can always learn more. Now I would like to get, at the end, I want to get to the supplementation and the, that's what everyone care about. But uh, I, I, I'm also interested in the, in the between. So maybe uh, if we can, uh, for a second, uh, focus on uh, the synthesis of the NAD and how uh, NAD basically absorbed in the body and how, it, how do we synthesize it and uh, do we need to absorb it from a food or can we de novo synthesize it in the body? So we can de novo synthesize it from tryptophan, but we need to have enough um, you know, food intake of either vitamin B3 or tryptophan. Uh, to be able to make it. And so the the pathway to synthesize it from tryptophan is, seems to be um, strangely unregulated. It seems like about 160th, as a rule of thumb, of the tryptophan that you take in gets converted to NAD, and it doesn't adjust very well to need. Um, so if you take in enough tryptophan, you can actually avoid vitamin B3 completely and be okay, um, at least for short-term uh, short studies. Um, or, or you can take in vitamin B3 and, and not worry about tryptophan levels you know, other than for protein synthesis or other things like that, uh, they can just substitute for each other. And you can cure pellagra with, with either one. Um, tryptophan is a little bit dangerous to supplement because it's also a precursor for neurotransmitters and inflammatory molecules. And so you may be getting a lot more than you bargained for if you take tryptophan trying to make NAD. Okay. And the synthesis of uh, the NAD, can you describe it a bit? I know from my study that the there is something called nicotinamide that it's basically an, uh, used to be an inhibitor of CIR2 and there are uh, uh, enzymes called uh, NAPT. And, uh, can, can you describe it as uh, simple as possible for our users? <laughs> How, what are the processes that uh, can uh, make a precursor of, of NAD to NAD and also how it's break down and so on? Right. So, so there's the th three major forms. Right? The nicotinamide and nicotinic acid are, the, are collectively called vitamin B3. Um, nicotinamide goes through a, a two-step process, starting with this enzyme we talked about before, NAMPT, right? that converts it to nicotinamide mononucleotide, and that gets converted by one of the NMNAT isoforms to NAD. If you start from nicotinic acid, you have a different first step through this enzyme called NAPRT, but essentially it's, it's making the nicotinic acid mononucleotide, and then it goes through the same step to get to the nicotinic acid adenine dinucleotide, it's almost synthesized. And then there's an enzyme called NAD synthase that converts the nicotinic acid to nicotinamide to make it NAD at that point. Um, so those two sort of have parallel pathways that use an overlapping enzyme in the middle. Um, okay. And uh, do we see in the uh, aging uh, mice or human a buildup of uh, nicotinamide or, or not? We don't. Um, if any, I Why mean, is that, it? I think there's no consensus that there's any change at all. And in many cases, when we've looked, we really haven't seen much of a difference between old and young. Um, in a few cases, maybe there's a decrease in nicotinamide at just a bit. Um, 
and and maybe that's just because there's a decrease of NAD in some cases, and the nicotinamide is being released from NAD turnover. Um, but we're, yeah, overall, we really don't see a consistent change in nicotinamide levels. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. Okay. And now uh, I would like to start talking about uh, the most uh, exciting part, I assume, for our audience, NMN and NR. And we discuss about the synthesis and uh, of NAD. So where are they standing, NMN and NR, and uh, what is the relationship for uh, NAD and why those two were selected to be a supplement, a precursor of NAD? Right. So... So what I described was the, you know, the, the two sort of vitamin forms, nicotinic acid and nicotinamide as starting points. Um, of course, there's actual NAD and all the different intermediates um, in, in food, right? When you eat meat, for instance, there's, there's lots of, uh, of synthesized molecules which break down in the gut and, and get absorbed. Um, but we hadn't really thought about supplementing that way in the past. And so uh, in, I believe, 2004, uh, Charlie Brenner showed that we actually have another enzyme called nicotinamide riboside kinase that can f- sort of feed sideways into this textbook diagram of NAD synthesis, where you'd start from nicotinamide and go to nicotinamide mononucleotide. And the enzyme he found uh, was able to convert nicotinamide riboside into nicotinamide mononucleotide. So, so create an alternative entry point. Um, and because that uh, nicotinamide riboside already has the ribose attached, um, that actually saves a lot of energy in the synthesis. And so it's, it seems like a minor point that you're coming in from one enzyme or the other to get to the same common intermediate of nicotinamide mononucleotide, uh, but it saves the equivalent of about two ATP to start from the riboside. And you can potentially do it in situations where there's feedback inhibition or, or downregulation of, of NAMPT, uh, you know, to have, to have an alternative way to rescue. Uh, and that's been so- shown if you build up NAD levels so that there is feedback inhibition on NAMPT specifically. And so theoretically, any other path gives you a way to boost NAD levels higher. And if I understood correctly, NR is a precursor of NMN that is a precursor of NAD. That's correct? That's correct. Okay. So, so basically, if you start with NR, you need to see, uh, the body needs to synthesize NMN in order to go to NAD. And if you start for NMN, you just need to go to N- uh, NAD. So you basically save a step. Right. So, the, so this, is, this is the crux of the debate in the field right now. So it was recognized for, for, by Charlie and then others that, that, you know, that by you know, starting from NR, you could potentially have some advantages in terms of NAD synthesis. At the same time, people started to question, okay, maybe you can take nicotinamide mononucleotide directly. Uh, and supplement that as well. They've both gone into mice. They both seem to have benefits. And there's been this real debate over which one is, is better. And the crux of that debate is whether NMN is directly transported or not. <laughs> so yeah. if NMN is not transported, then you have to take off the phosphate outside the cell to make NR. 
then move it in, then make NMN again. <laughs> so it's an extra step actually from NMN if it's not transported. But as you pointed out, yeah. it saves a step if it is transported. Yeah. So what you are saying, the, there is an hypothesis that NMN in the body is converted to NR and then going back to NMN and then going to NAD. So it might be that uh, going with NMN might take you another step, but it might also save a step and it's not clear yet. That's fair to say? Exactly. So, so I, I mean, just to say too, there's been some developments on the stories. The, you know, so first of all, in cultured cells, the, the having to remove the phosphate from the NMN is, is correct for the ones that have been studied. So there have a couple of labs have teased this apart in cell culture models. Um, and in those cases, definitely the NMN, and, and this includes my lab for some stuff we haven't published yet, but the, you absolutely have to go through this dephosphorylation step, take up the NR, and that's what makes the NAD. Um, and so that, you know, it seems like a, a vote in favor of that model. At the same time, Shin Mai's lab has discovered this transporter SLC12A8 um, that they show in their hands can transport NMN. And that's not expressed in all cell types. Um, it's highly expressed uh, in, in the gut and at least in some subpopulations of neurons have been the main things his lab's been studying. Uh, and so in those cases, he does see when he supplements NMN that there is a peak of uh, NMN that gets into the plasma directly, which suggests that it might be actually transported as an intact molecule um, that he doesn't see if it's NR that's supplemented. Um, and, so, and so there's there's a sort of case both ways at this point. I think what's clear is that there are a lot of cell types and, you know, and tissues where NMN is not transported. What, it's unclear whether in a different subset NMN is directly transported. <laughs> or, or and, 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 and Shin's experiment was done in tissue culture. It's not in an organism. That's correct? No, he's, he's made a knockout mouse now. Okay. Knockout. And shown that he sees less something through the gut uh, with, with NMN when, when you're missing this, this transporter. Okay, got it. And uh, if we're talking about absorption, so if you orally consume uh, those supplements, they need to basically... Uh, absorbed in the gut and uh, go via the bloodstream and then somehow uh, reach the, the target tissue. And I assume that there is also some influence, and I've seen some papers about that of the gut microbiome. So can you elaborate a bit about that and the long way from the field into the target tissue, what happened then? Right. So this is the other major complication that happens when you go in vivo compared to the cell culture experiments. Right. So we've done lots of work in cell culture and these things go, you know, in as advertised, you don't have to go through NAMPT to make NAD in cell culture from, from NR, right? It, it goes and yeah. it works perfectly well. Um, in a mouse, we've done a lot of studies now with tracers uh, where we do see that the vast majority of the nicotinamide that gets to a tissue after you've given nicotinamide riboside orally, you know, um, has been released from the ribose that it was originally attached to. So you're not getting the cell culture effect where the nicotinamide riboside is directly hitting that tissue. Um, and in fact, we can show that if we do it intravenously instead, it does go straight to the tissue. We get intact nicotinamide still connected to the ribose boosting the NAD pool. And so the, the amount that gets into tissues when you give nicotinamide riboside or mononucleotide orally um, in our hands, it, it's not zero. There is some small contribution, but it's a really small proportion of the administered dose. Um, and instead, we saw in our initial paper, at least that it was the nicotinamide getting there by itself in many cases contributing to NAD. Um, and then have gone on to show that actually that nicotinamide has gone through a stage where it was converted to nicotinic acid in many cases by the gut microbiome and then was converted back in the liver to nicotinamide and then released, and then it went to the target tissue where we measured an NAD molecule. Uh, 
Uh, and so it's, it's actually a, uh, a pretty complicated set of metabolic reactions that's taking place by the time you end up with more NAD in your tissue from many of these supplements. Yeah, sounds like it's uh, pretty complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to summarize, and again, I'm trying to simplify it. So sorry about that, but uh, I think that it uh, will be easier for our audience to understand because it's a very complex uh, subject. And uh, can, can you summarize as much as you can about uh, orally supplemented or even injected of uh, NAD analogs? What is the effect on the blood that we have seen? So level of, on the blood of NAD, but also level in target tissues, because I know that some target tissue it can get and some are not, and you alluded it by uh, the experiments that uh, Shiniman is doing. So can, can you try to elaborate a bit about that? Uh, and I'm just talking about levels right now. Yeah. So, I mean, if, so I can elaborate on blood for humans and tissues for animals. So, I mean, we see okay. um, variable effects on the tissues and animals, but we certainly see boosting. So in the, in the liver, we'll see, you know, maybe five fold increases. Uh, if we give a big bolus of one of these precursors in the kidney, al- almost that much as well. Um, where in, in other tissues, it's a much more muted effect. So in skeletal muscle, we might see a 30 or 40% increase. Um, in the brain, a 30 or 40% increase and in an adipose, maybe 50% increase. Um, so it, it does really depend on, on which tissue you're looking at, with the kidney and the liver being sp- yeah, specifically extremely responsive uh, in the gut to, a, to some degree as well. Uh, in mice, the blood levels hardly ever move very much. Uh, we have a lot of trouble being able to show that blood NAD increases in mice, even though we've got the tissues and the tissues are through the roof in some cases. Uh, in humans, there's almost no data looking at tissue levels of NAD. Uh, what we have is the blood, the blood levels. Um, and in humans, it seem, it's clear that blood levels will about double if you're on one of the supplementation regimens for NR or NMN that's been used commonly. And how do you explain it that in human you can see a nice increase in the blood in, and in mice you don't, but you see it in the target tissue? What is the scientific explanation for that? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't actually know how it's getting into those blood cells. I mean, part, part of this may be that a lot of the mouse studies uh, are much more acute, right? In many cases, the human blood we're looking at is after three months of supplementation and, and in the mice we're looking at a, a day or a couple of days. Um, mm. And so it may just be that it takes a while to build up in the blood. And we don't know if those red blood cells, if it's actually um, hematopoiesis, like if you have to wait for the precursor cell to have built up a lot of NAD and then produce more urethrocytes that are then what we're measuring. And so maybe maybe it just takes that long. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't really know exactly what's going on. Yeah. And in the mice, it was only orally administrated or also injection into the bloodstream? Uh, we've done studies with injection into the bloodstream and looked at tissue levels, which do go much higher that way. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever measured, I can't recall ever measuring blood levels in a mouse from one of those experiments. Okay. You know, we've only sort of recently realized that we should maybe care about the blood levels in the mice because that's the only accessible tissue in humans in many cases. Um, otherwise, yeah. you know, it seemed irrelevant in the mice because we, we can directly assess the target tissue. And, and I know that in human, at least there are some uh, clinics uh, called longevity clinics that they have some infusion of NAD uh, precursor to the blood. What is your opinion about that? <laughs> so there, I mean, I've struggled to find, there, there, I can say with, with confidence now, I think that there, there's absolutely no scientific evidence for anything with that procedure. There's just never been a controlled study done, as far as I can tell, of any kind. Uh, 
and so I, I I just don't really know what to say uh, for, for that at the moment. Okay. Um, I can say that the it seems like nobody has a clear articulation of what it's even for, to be honest. I've gone to a couple of those clinics and talked to people, and it's uh, primarily the one I was at. It was being used mainly to treat addiction right, rather than for longevity, even though it's become a little more fashionable now yeah. and people are taking it for sort of general health. But at that clinic, they were really uh, arguing that it, that it allowed you to, to get over addiction more easily if you were taking yeah. addictions. So if I will summarize it, it's cool, but there is no scientific evidence that it's doing anything. That's uh, fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, I also seen that uh, there are uh, some uh, instances that uh, some studies use a topical uh, NAD precursor. And uh, w what is the use of those uh, topical uh, implication of uh, NAD plus uh, analogs? Um, so I think the major driver of people thinking about topical applications, I think, is that there was evidence uh, for a while now that, that nicotinamide and nicotinic acid could uh, protect against skin cancer, uh, yeah. particularly these uh, keratinosis that form and as a, a precursor lesion to skin cancers were, were pretty dramatically prevented in a couple of phase two and three clinical trials. Um, and, and so some of the studies that have investigated that started using topical formulations as well and showed that they also protected wherever you put them. Um, and so I think that was the major driver behind people starting to think about putting them in skin creams. But uh, I, I think at this point also, there's probably also uh, quite a few unsubstantiated claims or, you know, because that's an easy indication to get a drug approval for as well. If you can do something topically, you don't have to spend as much time proving safety. Okay. And uh, I would say the $1 million or maybe $1 billion question, and uh, by the way, you don't have to answer it. There are uh, two camps right now, uh, some that they like the NR and some the NMN. Are you leaning more to one or each other, or you prefer to be uh, in the middle? <laughs> I mean, based on our evidence, I'm, I'm in the middle. Like, so at least for, we've done a lot of work on liver regeneration with both molecules, and they work just equally well as far as we can tell. We just can't make one work better than the other. We've done acetaminophen toxicity as well in the liver. And again, just, I mean, with designed experiments at the point of trying to prove that one was slightly better than the other and, and failed. They performed identically. <laughs> Um, okay. and, and the same thing in, in uh, acute kidney injuries. And then if you go with our tracing studies, I mean, our tracing studies suggest that either one of them breaks down to a large degree to, to nicotinic acid, which is one of the major you know, active forms that's being communicated to the tissues. And so that, I think, reconciles pretty well with our observation that they be performed similarly. <laughs> okay, so now I would like to go into the phenotypic effect of... Uh, those analogs and they start with mice. So what the literature is showing about the effect of uh, NMN or NR on the uh, tissues uh, or a uh, health benefit of the, those treatment on mice? Yeah, so, so there's, there's tons. I mean, I usually try to pick a few to focus on just because there, there's such a big literature on this now. Uh, and when I give talks, I usually point out the, the sort of anti-diabetic effects that's one, one thing. So there's improvements in glucose tolerance when you, you put diabetic mice on these things and they improve insulin sensitivity. Um, there's another whole category where there's been multiple different mouse models of heart failure that have all improved uh, substantially after taking uh, either NMN or NR. Uh, and, and the other major one I'd like to focus on is neurodegenerative disease. Like there's, again, nine or ten different models of uh, uh, mostly of Alzheimer's disease, where there's cognitive impairments uh, in supplementing NMN or NR uh, in all those cases, uh, improved 
cognitive function in those models. So the, those are the ones that I think are driving the most clinical trial <laughs> attention right now in, in, in terms of human translation. Uh, but there's all kinds of things like uh, improving age-related hearing loss, uh, you know, just uh, pain sensation uh, being improved, uh, lots of uh, sort of uh, traumatic injury models where things are improved. We've shown in hemorrhagic shock um, that it improves survival. Um, so it's, it's quite a long list at this point. <laughs> Yeah, and I was surprised when I prepared for this uh, interview. I, I read papers and I've seen that there is a lot of evidence that uh, those analogs can uh, improve the health of uh, mice, which uh, I was very skeptical before. Uh, so it's definitely interesting that there is a lot of data right now that, uh, that suggests, again, that in mice, we need to be sure it's in mice, those analogs can have some uh, benefit. And my next question related to the benefit is, is there any evidence that uh, supplementing mice with uh, those can uh, increase uh, longevity? Um, not great evidence at this point. So there was, there was an early study with nicotinamide riboside starting with very old mice uh, that showed you know, a, a matter of uh, weeks of maximum life, or sort of, uh, of remaining lifespan extension. So a, a very small but statistically significant improvement in that initial study. Um, there have been, uh, Shinamai has, has done again, uh, studies in NMN where he's treated mice from 12 months of age to 24 months of age. So getting pretty old and shown that many age-related phenotypes were improved, but that study didn't have enough mice in it to do a survival curve. So at that point he sacrificed them. Um, and then the NIA's intervention testing program took nicotinamide riboside on as one of its uh, test compounds. And that didn't show any survival benefit at all. And so I think that, that's been by far the largest and best done survival study with these NAD precursors. And, and the answer for that one was, was nothing. Um, the caveat to that is that the dose they selected was about one third of the dose that seemed to be successful in the earlier small study. <laughs> and so there's this yeah. question mark, I guess, around could you keep upping the dose and get to a point where there is a survival benefit or is that a final negative? Yeah. And uh, just to explain to the audience, the NIH uh, intervention study is actually done in uh, a few centers, correct, with a, a high number of mice. So it should be statistic, should show statistical significant result, even if it's uh, pretty small. And still, with the dose that they use, they couldn't see any effect. That's uh, fair to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And so, that, so I think the working model, you know, it has to be that we we are promoting healthy aging with this strategy potentially. Right? Many age-related diseases seem to have a, a, a better course. Yeah, with the yeah. NAD supplements, but the overall survival is not, not clearly improved. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, just to compare, uh, we discussed in your background about rapamycin. Rapamycin study have been shown uh, a significant effect on longevity in the same study that the NAD analog failed to show an effect. Yeah, the, the rapamycin was their first big success story for this yeah. program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you, you mentioned before uh, uh, basically the safety those that you can use. So what is the, uh, we discussed mice, but I would like now to uh, start and uh, transition to human. What is the higher dose that uh, a human can use of those uh, NMN or NR? So the doses that are being sold and marketed very, you know, for human use are 250 to 350 milligrams per day. Okay. Um, the human clinical trials have gone as high as two grams a day. And I think the way they got to that limit of what's really been tested is based on the fact that nicotinamide or nicotinic acid, the conventional vitamin B3 or B isoforms, 
um, start to show hepatotoxicity around. I mean, it's, it can occur starting at about one gram a day, and then it becomes common over three grams a day for both of them. Uh, and so I think that's been the fear in people's minds. If you go on a molar basis, uh, those have a smaller molecular mass. And so the, the weight, the equivalent for nicotinamide riboside would be somewhere around you know, three or four grams a day. If you're trying to match that one gram a day dose, that has risk for the other B3 isoforms. And so that's my impression, at least, is people have been afraid to get near that threshold. So so, so what, you, what I'm hearing from you, that the dose that today the supplements are sold is not toxic. Most likely it won't be toxic. So it might be not beneficial, but most likely it won't be toxic for the user. Right. So I think the, you know, there's always a, an issue with, you know, they, they have to be careful with your language around safety, I think, right? Yeah. Whenever we're doing something new, um, you know, nobody knows what the, the effects of 20 years of taking one of these supplements is, is, is going to be. I think as supplements go and as having this kind of intervention in your life goes, this is a pretty safe choice. The safety data look really good for the short-term studies that have been done for safety perspectives. So for several months, even at a pretty high dose, much higher than you would normally buy over the counter for these supplements, uh, there's been no indication that there's any toxicity. So I think it's got a big leg up on many of the other things you would find on the shelf at GNC in terms of yeah. the, the expectation of safety. Um, but, you know, there's, again, the, the, nobody can guarantee it when you're taking something that no, there's never been a study for 10 years with 10,000 people. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And even with the FDA-approved drugs, after five or 10 years, suddenly you, you find some uh, side effects. So everyone need to, especially with supplement and need to make the pros and cons for any supplement that is taking. Yeah, it might not be toxic for months, but it might be toxic after five or 10 years. And all of us, everyone that's listening to this podcast would like to live better longer. So be careful about that for sure. And uh, you mentioned about human uh, studies so far that uh, uh, at least few of them show that uh, when you consume those analog, you see an increase in the blood. My uh, follow-up question is, what are the benefits of uh, consuming those analog, at least uh, from the studies that uh, you have seen? So, the, I mean, the anecdotal benefits are, are all over the place. Uh, people claim uh, to, to you know, have higher energy to sleep better. Um, no, no, I'm talking, I'm talking about, uh, you know, peer-reviewed pre scientific yeah. uh, benefits. I'm not talking <laughs> about one person said that uh, his nails grew to five right. meters. <laughs> that one does come up, the nail growing, <laughs> which yeah. I eventually uh, noticed that myself. Um, no, I, I think the you know the things that are pretty solid at this point um, are, are really um, like body composition improving. So there have been a couple of studies that, and the effect on body composition has been proportional to how long and how high a dose um, in, in these studies. Uh, so I, I do think that there's uh, an, you know an increase in lean mass and decrease in fat mass, not an overall decrease in body weight. Uh, in, in almost any of the studies, there's a pretty dramatic improvement with nicotinic acid in, in mitochondrial myopathy, so functionally. So this is sort of a rare disease um, that, that causes muscle wasting, and those people have shown functional improvements after taking nicotinic acid, and you can actually uh, correlate the degree of improvement with how low their blood NAD levels were and how low muscle biopsy NAD levels were. So that, that's pretty encouraging uh, in that case, and, and so it's a pretty strong evidence that if you find the right condition, it will be beneficial. Um, and then I think after that, you get into to a lot of shakier things. So there's, um, uh, you know, uh, sorry, uh, ataxia telangiectasia. There's been a study showing that based on sort of scores of functional characteristics, the patients are doing better. 
but it's not sort of placebo controlled and there's not a lot known about how the natural history of that disease goes. So it's hard to put it in context right now of how confident and excited we should be. Uh, there's similar kinds of things for ALS, particularly with um, Elysium's formulation, which includes pterostilbene. So we don't know if that's the NAD boosting or not, but uh, a small groups of patients, again, show pretty impressive improvements in, in functional scores uh, in those types of things. Um, there's been one study with nicotinamide mononucleotide arguing that it improves muscle insulin sensitivity in humans. Um, and that's sort of counterbalanced by several studies with nicotinamide riboside showing no effect on insulin sensitivity. Uh, and, and so the, I think the one on NMN that had the positive result was a little bit um, hard to interpret in the sense that the placebo group um, had, had no real improvement, but the group that got NMN started with a little bit of insulin resistance and kind of improved up to the level of placebo group. Uh, you yeah. know, so there was an improvement within that group, but it wasn't that different from the placebo treated people at the end. Um, and, and so that, that study is being redone with a larger number and, and we'll see how well that holds up if there really is a muscle insulin sensitivity phenotype that's consistent. Um, but as I said, many of the other studies that have done riboside at least uh, haven't seen improvements in insulin sensitivity. And, and so this is, Kind of been the story of, the, of these human clinical trials so far is that there, there have been um, scattered promising indications with a lot of negative data and many of them yeah i in last year ardd i heard a group in a, a european group in denmark that actually look at muscle biopsy in human and they try to see obviously treated with uh, one of the analog i don't remember which one and they haven't seen any effect on the muscle uh, structure or muscle power but they also seen a negative effect on the i think that was an ldl cholesterol that uh, become higher i don't know if this paper was published yet or not have you heard about this study i don't think i have heard of that one specifically okay, um, okay. a few cases with yeah things like um um you know, homocysteine or LDL cholesterol have moved a little bit. I think in the Elysium study that did too, but they, you know, it was unclear again, because they have pterostilbene in their compound as mm -hmm. well, clear which component um, is responsible for that. But um, at least in the data I've seen, a lot of these things have not been super clear and consistent between studies, even if there was a statistically significant bump in one. Yeah. And, and I, I worry that a lot of it comes down to multiple comparisons as well, where, you know, there's, 50 parameters being measured and one of them hits a P of 0.05. So <laughs> it ends up you know, being flagged in that study. But uh, I, I'm not aware of too many things like that that have been repeated multiple times independently. So, so in your opinion, why is the data so weak in human for the analogs and so strong in the mice? What is the reason for that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a critical question for the field right now. I mean, so one possibility is the dose, right? There is this issue of, you know, concern about potential toxicity that keeps people limiting the dose that they, they treat humans with, where in mice, we're doing 500 milligrams per kilogram in a lot of these studies, right? Which would mm -hmm. be 40 grams in a human, way above what anyone's ever done. Um, and in the mice, if you dial back the dose, um, it doesn't work as well generally. <laughs> and so that's one possibility is that we really need to scale by body weight um, to see the same effects. Uh, I think, you know, some of the other potential things are, you know, related to species differences with, um, you know, sort of immune regulation or microbiome uh, modification of some of these things. Maybe that we don't, you know, have the same species in our guts that the mice do. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it, it's something we, we've really got to deal with now. And I think the other thing that it illustrates is that we don't 
have great markers for a lot of what we're trying to look at. <laughs> you know, we don't know which tissue we're trying to increase the NAD in or which cell type and what that does to that tissue or cell type and then how that mediates the beneficial effect that we see in the mice. Uh, and so it leaves us stuck in many cases, the human studies, just, just not knowing if we're triggering some similar pathway or failing to activate the pathway. So, so it sounds to me that uh, we are still in the early days in the human studies and uh, we really don't have the right hypothesis. What is the effect of those on a, a specific organ or specific processes? And we are basically in a fishing expedition and it's very hard to do a fishing expedition in humans because the hand should be big and it's very expensive and it's very hard for, I assume, supplement company to do it because it's uh, super expensive. That's fair to say. Yeah, no, I think I think all of that is true, you know, and, and I think, you know, the, I mean, it may just be the length of studies in many cases too, right? So most yeah. of the studies that are out there are a few months long, which in humans is a pretty yeah. small fraction of lifespan, where in the mice yeah. we're often doing more more actual time, which is a much bigger fraction of their lifespan to see some of these things, and so that that may be part of it too that we just need to sustain this intervention over a much longer time to see certain benefits. Yeah. And if one of our listeners will come to you and say, hey, Joe, should I consume NMN or NR? What, uh, what would be your reaction? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think it comes down a little bit to personality, too, right? Like, I mean, if, you know, if you're comfortable with a little bit of risk for some potential gain, you know, to, to, to roll the dice a little bit with these things, I do think it's one of the particularly safe supplements that's out there. And, and if you feel better on it, um, you know, I, I would certainly feel comfortable saying you, you should go ahead and stay on it, you know, if, if, if it's making you feel better. Um, yeah, I think that's, you okay. know, I think one of the things we have to recognize, I guess, is, you know, I always, I always point out that it's, it's easy for us to say there's insufficient evidence, you know, for this or that, and these things haven't been evaluated in sufficient, you know, phase three trials. At the same time, there's probably 50,000 dietary supplements that are being marketed right now. And I think we also have to deal with the fact in life that they will never all be tested. It's not going to happen. It's not possible. Yeah. It, it, you know, and so to some degree, we, we do have to decide what we're, how much risk we're comfortable taking and then uh, you take our best guess at some of these things. And I think for sure, if you actually feel the benefit, and I've had a lot of people tell me that, that they you know, anecdotally sleep better or feel more energetic, I, I certainly would encourage them to stick with it if that's what makes them feel better. And are you personally consuming them? And if yes, which one? <laughs> so uh, I mean, I've taken both. Uh, I'm more, I haven't committed to a regimen, you know, indefinitely for, for either one, but I do is sort of, uh, experiment on myself with them sometimes, you know, we've got a Peloton bike and I definitely, uh, you know, try to ride it a couple of times and get all my metrics and then supplement for a couple of weeks and see if they change and that kind of thing. Um, so I've more commonly taken nicotine my riboside just because it's more readily available. <laughs> and do you see any benefits or you feel any benefits? I've got to say, I, I haven't been able to quantify anything that I'd be willing to claim, <laughs> you know, in, in yeah. terms of the actual output metrics for, you know, workout or something. That, for me, it hasn't changed much off or on. Um, I've definitely felt more energetic when I'm trying to fall asleep. So sort of in contrast to what people constantly tell me about how much better they sleep, I find I sleep worse <laughs> when I take okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so it might, it might be a, a person-specific or and maybe it's uh, just a placebo effect. Right? Yeah. It's out of me. Yeah. And you mentioned the, so, the fingernail thing, which comes up a lot, actually, which I, which yeah. I have noticed a few times when I take it, I suddenly have to cut my nails a lot. more. 
Yeah, so you feel you see that as well. Yeah, I heard it from a, a few people that I spoke with them about that. That's uh, I think that that's the most frequent. I don't know if benefit, but effect of those supplements is uh, uh, somehow the uh, fingernails are uh, I know growing faster. For sure, that's uh, I'm hearing a lot about that. So, Joe, we always finish our uh, interview with uh, a one tip that you, as an expert, as a scientist, would like to provide to our uh, listener about. Uh, Health span. What uh, would you recommend them to do if they uh, can do only one uh, modification of their life? What should they do? Um, well, quit smoking if they're smokers. That <laughs> 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 I think we. I mean, I, I think reality is that you have to say exercise next, right? I mean, that that is just the, the clearest thing. I think you have to do all the, you know, all the typical recommendations your mother would have told you about how to be healthy or. or are the first things to do. Quit smoking, exercise, eat fruits and vegetables. <laughs> sort of after that, you can start to do these, uh, you know, more more novel things. Um, I guess other than that, for me, I I do find that I feel better eating in a time-restricted window. <laughs> and I know that, you know, it's not clear that that's showing much benefit for weight loss in particular, but I, I've always kind of felt like our bodies are meant to sort of cycle through feeding and fasting phases. And I personally feel a lot better when I do that, so. I'd uh, maybe recommend so, so what, that on top. What what do you do? Can you elaborate? When do you start eating and when do you stop eating? Uh, for me, I just I don't eat breakfast, and I know okay. in the studies that have been done, that's generally uh, been the opposite of the recommendation. People claim that they get better metrics by eating only in a you know starting when they get up and stopping well before bedtime. Um, I just find I, I'm naturally find it very easy to skip breakfast and to even eat a late lunch after that. So I'll often start eating at 2 p.m. Um, and then um, you know, up till midnight if I'm that still won't, won't uh, avoid having a snack. I mean, typically I'll eat 2 p.m. to about 9 p.m. But okay. never, almost okay, never that, after midnight. So it's usually a 14-hour fast in there. That's good to know. So, Joe, th- thank you so much for uh, joining us. That was a fascinating discussion about NAD, metabolism, uh, the analogs, and uh, what is known in the literature. I think that it's a very confusing field. And, and I think that it uh, makes sense because it's a, a field that is uh, evolving. So usually we, that's what happened. I remember the serotonin at our time, you at uh, David Sinclair and me at uh, Lenny Garente. One day uh, it was X and the other way it was Y. So I think that we are in the same position here with the uh, and now with the NAD analogs, and uh, I think that it's a, a very valuable for our listener to hear from, from from an expert, a scientist expert, of what is really going on in the scientific community and in the literature as of uh, the end of 2023. And I'm sure that uh, if we'll uh, interview you in 2024, 2025, some of the things will be different. But it, at least that's the scientific truth for today. So thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate uh, having you and uh, having your uh, wisdom and understanding about uh, longevity. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out 
using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast. 